Hey y'all, welcome to what is technically my first episode of Sweet Teens Lauder. I'm glad to have you guys joining me, and today we're going to be talking about two weird murders slash unsolved crimes um, that have occurred within the last um, a, a little under 70 years. So let's get right into it. The first story that we will be talking about is actually the boy in the box, which if you live in America, then you know this as America's unknown child. Um, we're just going to start off with where he was found, how old he was, and the evidence we have of this case. Okay, so he was found on the 25th of February of 1957, although police have tracked that to be not the first time that his body was found, it was the first time it was reported. So, on that day, um, a college student named Frederick Benosis uh, found the new body of what appeared to be a four- to six-year-old boy. He was wrapped in a flannel bank blanket inside a baby's bassinet cardboard box, and this was distributed by JCPenney. Um, so, as I said before, this wasn't the first discovery of the boy. In fact, two days prior, um, a young man spotted the body when he was checking his muskrat traps in a rural area near Philadelphia. But knowing that his traps were illegal, he decided against telling police. It was only a few days later that Benosis came across the body, and even he waited an additional day before contacting authorities. Because he was in the area for a very weird reason, he was spying on young women at the Good Shepherd School and was worried about telling them why he was there. Local media was fixated on this case. He, the pictures of the boy were plastered everywhere, including flyers and gas bills for all Philadelphia customers. So, if you have ever seen the photo of the boy in the box, it is obviously an extremely saddening photo. Um, it's, it's a lot to take in, but let's just get into who he is and who we kind of have an idea of who he is. So, obviously, his identity has never actually been determined, so the case is still unsolved. The boy in the box is described as having blue eyes, fair complexion, and medium to brown, and let me quote, crudely cut hair. His nails were noted as being neatly trimmed, and he had deep bruises covering much of his body and face. But uh, experts actually speculate that to be due to the cold weather. And they say that either the boy had... There's um, a timeline of him being in the box between two to three days and two to three weeks. So, they're quite unsure of how long he was in there as the body was quite well preserved due to the cold weather. They had some initial thoughts were, that were promising. Um, they were sure that someone would report a missing child or that his photograph would be leading to an identity and um, that never occurred. No one even reported a missing child that fit his description, and thousands of leads produced came to a dead end. So, that's when investigators began to focus on the baby bassinet box that the body was found in. It was one of 12 sold by a JCPenney store in Upper Darby, which is in Philadelphia, and all but one were traced back to their owners. Even the boy's fingerprints and footprints came up negative, and they were compared to national hospital databases, uh, sorry, national and local hospital records. 
So, some of the case evidence that we have is that his hair was crudely cut and located throughout his body, indicating that he, it was cut while he was deceased and naked or immediately before he died. His hands and feet were wrinkled, indicating that they had been submerged in water for an extended time just before or after he died. He may have had a chronic eye ailment. He had not eaten two to three hours before death. And the cheap faded the cheap faded Jeez, y'all, I'm struggling today. Um, okay, let me try this again. The cheap faded flannel blanket that he was wrapped in was made in either North Carolina or Quebec, Canada. It was also mass-produced and shipped to multiple locations. So that was hard to track down to one specific person. Uh, this is um, important for later. His esophagus contained a dark brown residue, um, possibly indicated that he vomited shortly before death. He was severely malnourished, and his cause of death was multiple blows to the head. So... Let's get into some of the theories, and then we'll go into where he's buried and all of that. The first theory is that Frederick Benosis, who was the man who was spying on these girls, he was initially thought of as a suspect, but he was questioned and then actually cleared via a lie detector test. Um, the next is interesting, but I don't feel like it's the true lead that they needed. Um... A foster home was located about one and a half miles away from the crime scene, um, and this is the first location that police officers wanted to check. There were eight children residing in the home. All children located at the home were checked out, and the family was ruled out. Speculation still exists that Arthur Nicoletti, the man who ran the, um, the foster home, is somehow involved. He refused to take a lie detector test, and then... When a psychic was hired to assist in the investigation, she led her, they, she led them directly to the foster home without it even being in the area first. But I don't think that truly is the lead that they needed. I don't think it leads to anything that has to do with the boy. Um, this lead is what I think is the strongest lead. It's the one that I think truly leads to the murderer. So this lead occurred in May of 2002 when a businesswoman known as M, um, I don't know her full name, but she was known as M, and she was from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, she claimed that her mother had purchased the boy from his parents in 1954. They had named the boy Jonathan, and he was regularly abused and housed in the basement. He was described as being handicapped, and could not speak, and M claimed her mother killed him in February of 1957 in a fit of rage by throwing him down on the floor, and this is, this is, this entire part just is what makes me believe that this is the murderer, by throwing him down on the floor after he vomited in the bathtub after eating baked beans. So, first I'm going to touch on the fact that she stated that he had vomited in the tub after eating baked beans, the the fact that there was any brown residue of anything that was in his esophagus when they found the body was not released to the public, nor was the fact that he was um, killed as a, basically that the reason he died was because of a blunt force trauma to the head, 
They never exposed that to the media. They never told anyone about that. So it was interesting that she had any idea about this boy's condition, and it all just kind of made sense. So, I mean, if you can think about it, being thrown down in a fit of rage on the floor definitely does um, cause some trauma to the head. Um, he vomited in the bathtub. Um, the bathtub is a actually really important. The cold would have preserved the wrinkling on the feet and fingers of being in the water. So the fact that they found wrinkling on feet and hands corroborates being in a bathtub and uh, the vomiting, the baked beans, It um, that makes sense too. So from what we can tell, honestly, this is the strongest lead. But after six months of attempting to corroborate her story, it was determined that she had a history of mental problems and none of the information she told them could be proven. So, really this boy is dead and has been dead for years, but he will never truly have justice because dying in 1957 means that even though the people who knew about him then are slowly dying themselves, so it's hard to continue to try and locate the murderer of this boy. I mean, obviously we know that um, the murderer is honestly probably dead, and there's most likely no probability that we will ever find his killer. Um, so, that's just sad for him and for our country that we couldn't solve this murder, or that we couldn't corroborate this woman's story, because I think truly that her mother did kill him. I believe it, but... We can't do anything now. So he was buried in uh, a potter's field next to Mechanicsville and Dunks Ferry Road. Uh, the tombstone simply read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. And his body was exhumed in 1998. And mitochondrial DNA was extracted from his tooth. Um, even now, they are currently still trying to link this child to a relative by scanning it through a database. But the mitochondrial DNA sequence is too small to really produce a conclusive match to anyone. So on November 11th of 1998, he was reburied in a donated coffin at the Ivy Hill Cemetery. No website was launched to keep his memory alive and help generate new leads. So honestly, there's no good news with this as there's no justice. Um, but this next story that I'm going to get into is called The Butterbox Babies. And it is the murdering and selling of Canadian babies and children. So, this story does have more of a conclusive ending. Um, we do have people who were arrested and who were convicted for these crimes. So that does make it a little better. <laughs> Not that this is a situation that we can consider better. It is still extremely <laughs> saddening. So, um... Let's get into it. So, uh, the location where this occurred is the Ideal Maternity Home, which operated in East Chester, Nova Scotia, Canada, from the late 1920s through, we can assume, at least the late 1940s. The people who operated it were William and Lilla Young. William was a chiropractor and Lilla was a midwife, although she advertised herself as an obstetrician. 
And while they were tried for various crimes, um, including manslaughter, the entire truth of these horrors um, were not widely known until way later. So, the ideal, the purpose of the ideal maternity home was to provide maternity care for local married couples and discreet birthing and placement for children of unwed mothers. So, um, I'm not sure if most of you know this, but I would assume that you do. Um, back in the 1920s through the 1940s, being pregnant while being unwed was truly just <laughs> not a good situation. You didn't want to be pregnant while you were married because people looked down upon it. So this this birthing home, the maternity home, was a prime place for these women to give birth to their babies in discreet and private settings where they were not going to be judged. So it was also the source of an illegal trade of infants between both Canada and the United States. During this period, the laws in the U.S. forbid adoption across religious backgrounds, so there was an acute shortage of babies available for Jewish couples to adopt. Um, the home would provide these people basically black market adoptions, charging upward to $10,000 for one baby. And um, at that time, the parents of these children, the ones who were adopting the baby, did not always know that they were not Jewish. Many of these children were marketed as being Jewish when truly they weren't. So that was um, something that many people found out later on that was difficult to learn, especially for these children who were adopted and who grew up in the home thinking that they came from a different background than they did. So, uh, so many of these babies in the 1940s ended up in Jewish homes in New Jersey, but at the same time, they would charge the mothers who were giving birth $500 for their services, and at this time, the average wage was $8 a week. So, many mothers could not afford this and were forced to work at the home for upwards of 18 months to pay their bills. So, during World War II, business was booming because nearby Halifax was a major port serving as the point of departure for convoys crossing the North Atlantic to England. Uh, the sailors and merchant seamen would squeeze as much of their life into their days in the port as they could. Um, and many women were left unmarried or widowed expectant mothers. So the ideal maternity home offered almost the only place that could provide for these women and their children. It was discovered later that the youngs would purposely starve unmarketable babies to death by feeding them only molasses and water. On this diet, the infants would usually last only about two weeks. Any deformity, a serious illness, or dark coloration would often seal their fate. Babies who died were disposed of in small wooden grocery boxes, typically used for dairy products, which um, is where they get their name as the butter box babies, and they refer to these unfortunate infants. Their bodies were buried on the property adjacent to a nearby cemetery at sea, or sometimes burned in the home's furnace. So, 
In some cases, married couples who had come to the house solely for birthing surfaces, services, wow, I'm sorry y'all, I'm really just struggling tonight with some of these pronunciations, I guess, um, I don't know, <laughs> so they, they were there for the birthing surfaces, Sur oh my gosh, services, and they were told that their baby had died shortly after birth. And this happened to multiple families. Um, but in truth, these babies were also sold to adoptive parents. They would separate um, and create siblings to meet the desires of customers. So they would take babies and whether or not they were actually related, they would create pairs of siblings to sell off. Um... It is estimated that between four and six hundred babies died at the home, while at least another thousand survived and were adopted. Um, and most of the time, even these lucky thousand babies who continued to be adopted uh, suffered from ailments caused by the unsanitary conditions and lack of care at the home. So that's just truly <laughs> so sad. And people now are finding out that either they were a butterbox baby or, I mean, I don't think it's fair to call them butterbox babies as they weren't the ones who died, but there is really no other name for them. So, um, even those who were adopted are still called the butterbox babies. Um, so... People are now finding out that either they were a Butterbox baby or one of their family members was a Butterbox baby. And for years, they had no idea that this was a bad thing. Um, and eventually, uh, the Youngs were convicted and sent to prison for... Uh, well, they're going to be in prison for their entire lives and will die there. For That's how long their sentences were. I'm pretty sure they both got two life sentences, and no parole. But I may be wrong. Um, I can't find anything quite telling me the exact time that they were sentenced to. So, um, The other really sad thing is that these unwanted children that were killed and buried um, were put in unmarked graves. So now there's no way to figure out what babies died and anything like that. So there, there was a movie made about the Butterbox babies. Um, it was released in 1995 and starred um, Susan Clark. So there is a movie that you can watch. Uh, I have truly never watched it, but I think it is, um, from what I've heard, it's a great movie. So. Um, and then as well as that, as well, there's a CBC documentary, which is uh, Canadian Bro Broadcasting Corporation, which is Canada's national TV network. So if any of you live in Canada, uh, you can watch this documentary about the Butterbox Babies and the ideal maternity home. So that is really all I have for you guys on this week's episode. I'm just really glad you joined me and continue to hear me stumble through so many pronunciations. I'm not entirely sure why I'm struggling so much tonight, um, but I am. 
So I hope you join me for the next episode. And you can, um, hopefully, I will be better at pronunciations and making sure I'm not stumbling over words so much. So join me there, and we will see how things go next time. I'm really happy that you guys joined this episode of Sweet Teen Slaughter, and I hope you listen in next time. Thank you.